0: Hello and welcome to Tops 10, brought to you by KTXT Radio and the College of Media and Communication at Texas Tech University in beautiful Lubbock. Tops 10 seeks out successful and influential people in politics and government, the many professions, the physical and social sciences, or the arts and humanities, and asks them to reveal their lives, ideas, and ideals through their playlist. Our format is simple. We ask our guests what pieces of music mean the most to them and to tell us the story behind the infatuation. Mr. Derek Ginter is our producer and engineer, and I'm David Perlmutter, a professor at and dean of the College of Communication, and host of Top's Ten. Today, I have with me Mr. Clark Bell. Clark Bell is the McCormick Foundation's journalism program director. Clark, who joined the foundation in 2005, oversees journalism grant-making initiatives and shapes the program's focus on critical issues facing the news media. He manages an annual grant-making budget of nearly $6 million. Clark is a veteran reporter, editor, publisher, and communications consultant. Prior to joining the McCormick Foundation, he was managing director for American Healthcare Solutions, where he developed communication strategies for hospitals, medical foundations, and technology firms. But I guess, Clark, if you're next to somebody on an airplane and they say, who are you? you, know, what do you do,
1: do you say, I'm a journalist? Definitely, I'm a lifer. I started out in journalism when I was 14 years old. I knew by the time I was 16 that's what I wanted to do, and I've stuck with it ever since. I do work for a foundation now, and I did do some consulting work, but they're all journalism-based.
0: Can you spot a journalist across the room by the, the way they talk or their habits or the way they dress or don't dress?
1: I would say more in conversation, the, if they're inquisitive and curious and ask more questions, uh, that usually kind of tips me off. Uh, but journalists, some of them are flashy and, well, you know, really well-dressed and others kind of have their shirt tail out and sloppy. So I think it's more in the brain than what you wear or how you act. You and I are the generation where we remember the sort of
0: alternate stereotypes of being a journalist were Woodward and Bernstein from the movie, the All the President's Men. I, I've never met either of them in person. So, I don't know whether they actually lived up to Dustin Hoffman and Robert Redford in terms of the sort of flashy, charming, you know, leading man type journalist, you know, who's a star and also the sort of rumpled typewriter banging, you know, door knocking traditional investigator. Are those two sort of competing
1: stereotypes of what what journalists are? Well, definitely. And I think uh, with those two, they captured it, uh, you know, head on. Bob Woodward is actually from Wheaton, Illinois, which is the town next to the town where I grew up, and he plays the bit, and if you look at his bio, you've got a Robert Redford-type character.
0: You mentioned something else, too, which I think is really crucial to pass along to our students, is that I meet so many people who, at one point in their career, the early part of their career, they were traditional journalists. They were a reporter, they were an editor, and then they went on to something else, but all of them say that the skills, the attitudes, the sort of ideals they developed in journalism school and working as a journalist are extraordinarily helpful to them. Curiosity, being able to write tightly and precisely on deadline, Mm -hmm. asking the right questions, reading people, being dogged and following up to find the truth. These are great skills for life and a job no matter what
1: you do. Well, it's part of the DNA. I just think uh, in the field of journalism, Mm That's what it takes to succeed. And even though you may leave the field for economic reasons or opportunity reasons, I I think that it's that curiosity and the ability to communicate that that went out overall.
0: Yeah, I've never met a journalist who was easily dissuaded from investigating something. A very good friend of mine who's now st- teaching journalism was I, I, when I met him he was a copy editor at the Minneapolis Star Tribune and he was ta- the paper apparently paid for him to take classes at the University of Minnesota and he just took random classes. So he was taking a class in like Shakespeare's comedies. Mm-hmm. And I said, "Well, that's interesting. What's a copy?" And he said, "I just like to learn things. It helped everything I learn helps me with my job."
1: Well, I'd like to think that many of us are Renaissance people. We have many interests. While I have special specialties and topics that I really drill down on, what I love about a newspaper is that you learn so much about things you didn't even know you were interested in just by going through a page or scrolling down online. I think that's, that's part of the magic of the process. Absolutely. Now, the
0: first song you listed for was a very famous one, Not Fade Away. Uh, which has a lot of metaphorical meaning as well as local meaning, Buddy Holly song. Were you a Buddy Holly fan?
1: Well, you know, I was coming to Lubbock, and as I was composing this list, I just thought, how can you not put a Buddy Holly in? I've got hundreds of songs I could have put on this list. To cut it down to ten was very difficult, but... I think Not Fade Away is is really represents what Buddy Holly's all about. In fact, it was a B-side to another song that, uh, that he had done called Oh Boy. And this was just kind of obscure, but it became popular, especially as time marched on. I like it especially because it's covered by two of my favorite groups, the Rolling Stones and the Grateful Dead, which aren't really the same kind of genre. Uh, country, uh, uh, Grateful Dead, more country-based and... Of course, Rolling Stones are kick-ass rock and roll. But I think that uh, their rendition of Not Fade Away pays homage to Buddy Holly. I think his influence on, the, on Americana is so strong. And being in Lubbock, I just felt I had to go with the hometown guy.
2: I'm gonna tell you how it's gonna be Are you gonna give your love to me? love me bad your love me got to be real for you to know it, just how i feel I love for real not fade away Love to me
1: up in Wyoming. Is the first, your first couple of years. No, I was born in Casper, Wyoming. Yeah, yeah. My father had, was a rancher, and he'd gone to work uh, for Swift and Company, which was the big meat company at that time. And he had got so a-
0: rancher and you had cattle. Uh, he, he did. No, yeah, he did. Yeah.
1: I uh, He then got a degree after World War II at the University of Denver and then went on to the business side at Swift. So he was in sales and marketing and so forth, but transferred around the country. So I actually grew up in Baltimore and Philadelphia and ultimately got to the Chicago area where Swift was headquartered. But certainly I would go to the ranch in Colorado uh, where he was from uh, during the summers. My mother's family were all farmers and railroad railroad people from that kind of corner of the uh, country where Pennsylvania and Maryland and West Virginia all meet. So I was fortunate enough to grow up in, you know, suburban Chicago and, and nice suburbs, but I was exposed to different types of lifestyles. And I found that to be very valuable in my upbringing. Did you have any early
0: career interest? I mean, cattle? Or, or I mean was there something where you had a, an aha moment for journalism or, or your first experience in it,
1: yeah, it was really sports was, was my was my front door and my back door I, I was uh, very athletic I played all the uh, sports and uh, followed them religiously I remember following baseball uh, you know get the standings and the batting averages every day I had a dice baseball game I knew all the players and I started paying attention to how the sports were covered both in print but mostly on broadcast. So I guess my first inclination was to try to be a sports announcer, a broadcaster uh, of the ilk of uh, Jack Brickhouse or uh Red Barber, you know the the real classic people at that time. But that, that's what I wanted to get into was was sports broadcasting or sports journalism, and that was probably when I was ten years old. I knew that's what I wanted to do, unless I was good enough to play for the New York Yankees, and that didn't quite work out. You didn't quit your day job for that, no sir, no sir.
0: So so these were the I was remember Red Barber, and I I think I was
1: just. Coming in at the
0: time where he, his his career was uh, just at the end of his his career, but but he he was one of the famous voices of the radio of, of sports. Oh, Mel Allen. The, you know, yeah, there were yeah. there were a few yeah. of these
1: that went along, but they were just icons and remained so to that day. But being in Chicago at the time, um, uh, you know, it was Jack Brickhouse, Bob Elson. These were these were the top guys.
0: Did, did the Chicago teams became the ones that you. Uh,
1: boy, that's that's interesting. I was Cause like when I meet people from Chicago, it's basically: Are you a Cubs fan or are you a White Sox? What, exactly. Yeah. But I had been a Yankees fan as a kid because I loved Whitey Ford and Mickey Mantle; they were my heroes. But then, by the time I got to Chicago and I was through high school, you get bit by the bug, and that's the Wrigley Field, the whole Cubs experience. You buy into it. Uh, I was there when they blew the pennant in 1969. I've had the ups and downs and the are you pain. Still upset? uh i I just say it's more frustration now that every year, they either are so bad or they're almost good enough. And it, they're just steeped in mediocrity. But I did become a Cubs fan. Part of it is just because of the experience and the the shared pain, I think. So this is the brotherhood of the aggrieved. I know a lot of Cubs
0: fans who, it, it, it's it, it's almost like they're, they're stuck in a bad marriage and they just can't get out, you know, they just...
1: And they're off to a good start <laughs> this year and they've got a, a lot of young players, but I'm at the point where I'm just holding my breath. <laughs> <laughs> you, you've been disappointed too many too times. Too many times has right?
0: the heart's Sorry. been broken. Your next song is Bertha uh, from the the Grateful Dead. Now, you talked about um, Bertha being your, your grandmother's name. How much time did you spend on this? Was it summers at the ranch? Or, I mean,
1: yes. You yeah. Know. It, you know, it, it's uh, just Bertha is such an obscure name. Not a lot of kids <laughs> named Bertha. I don't get a lot of Berthas in class now. And my father was named Homer. I'm Clark, wow. so we've got, uh, we've got a lot of weird names in the family, but Bertha... Eartha was kind of a song. Were you
0: teased the, about, you know, Superman and Clark?
1: And, uh, all sure. the time, yeah. all the time. And it was, I guess the toughest thing was I'd say my name and people would, they'd say Bill Clark. they just not ready to absorb short names. And I think an odd name like Clark, they just kind of trip over that. But I I dealt with that. It was a <laughs> psychological scar, but we, but we moved on and now Clark's become a popular name. Wait a second. Take off your glasses. Oh my God, you're Superman! No, I didn't notice that. Okay, (laughs) must have been the red cape sticking out in the back. I gotta tuck that sucker in. Uh, But anyway, let's go back to Bertha because my grandmother was a major influence. Would spend these summers in Colorado. She was a sweetheart, Uh, and it happens to be the song the Grateful Dead typically will use to open up a show. And it's just a, it's got a lot of bounce to it, as you probably know. The Grateful Dead are wrapping it all up. They're doing their fiftieth anniversary. Uh, shows this summer, God willing, and the last three are going to be in Chicago, July 3rd and 4th and 5th at Soldier Field, and I'm going to be there for one of them, so I'm looking forward to that, but Bertha really knocks it home for me.
0: taking a, a, a swing to uh, either right the right of rock and roll or the, the more more pure rock and roll I guess the ultimate rock and roll band the the Rolling Stones and can't you hear me knocking mm-hmm
1: yeah, it's it's one of the uh, cuts off of the Sticky Fingers album which arguably is their best of all time. I remember seeing the Rolling Stones when I was 13 years old. It was the very first rock and roll concert I went to and my friend's father took us down to the uh, to the McCormick Place in Chicago and you had the McCoys singing Hang on Sloopy. And then you had another group from Boston called the Standells who sang a big song called Dirty Water. And then the Rolling Stones came out there. And it, being in Chicago is one of their first times really in the U.S. And I, I've been one over ever since. Uh, I selected this song. You know, it's kind of an outshoot of they are connected to Not Fade Away. Uh, Rolling Stones do a great job of that but I, I thought of the countless Rolling Stones songs that I really like which one would be kind of the epitome of, of, of the sound but also the mastery of the writing and the production and can't you hear me knocking which is a seven-minute song it's got a great saxophone solo by, by Bobby Keys uh, they don't often perform this in concert But as a studio piece, I think it it really represents what the Rolling Stones are all about. But again, for me, it goes back to my early teen years, these formative years, and, and I remember wearing white striped bottom bottom pants To this concert <laughs> You still have them?
0: No No
1: <laughs> they, A little problem
0: they, With the waist They may come back uh, In style someday
1: But <laughs> well, my mother and father Looked at me Like I was crazy And here I go off To Chicago And we had, did have A parent chaperone But uh, yeah, you know It was one of those Experiences that Really did change My musical life At least
0: Now, when you were growing up, was there music in your house where someone the, the, the would play the piano or sing? Or, a lot of people will tell us that they heard music really for the first time in church or at home.
1: Yeah, I, I would say that uh, first of all, I sang in the church choir, and and the home we were always singing. It just seems that was part of part of life. Uh, I played flute a little bit. I played drums a little bit. I wouldn't say we were a musical family necessarily, but we loved to listen to the radio when we were taking cross country t- trips and. Uh, I I think I just became enamored by the whole music scene because that's where the girls were for instance and it it just seemed to represent uh, my life growing up and even to this day I usually have a song of the day in my head which I'll be humming or singing to myself and I try to change it up every day so uh, uh it, it's just something that that really represents who I am and what I like did your parents musical taste
0: attract you at all or were you rebelling against it what did they
1: probably rebelling against I would say I mean my most parents of that generation were saying you know we're Frank Sinatra maybe stretching to Elvis but it and it was more my my parents, because of their backgrounds, were more into the country sounds, you know, country and western. Uh, I don't think they, you know, they just were a little concerned by all these long-haired British people coming over and having influences on the kids. And certainly there was rebellion and, you know, the things that go along with rock and roll music. But I'd say my parents just kind of looked at it with a jaundice eye. Uh, but they were more... I would say either traditional ballads, Tony Bennett, uh, Frank Sinatra stuff, or along the country and western lines. Now, the
0: songs we've picked so far,
1: I, I guess, would fall under
0: either love or philosophy songs or thoughtful songs. But the next one that you put down, Ohio, mm-hmm. by Crosby, Stills, Nash Young. A, a 100% political song of the 1960s. In fact, one of the probably top five classic 19, well, 1970s, the early 1970s, right? Right. But that era, a lot of people talk about how the 60s really started in 1964 and ended in 73. I mean, the, the 60s weren't exactly yeah. a, just 10 years. It was more after the Kennedy assassination
1: that a lot of the things. And the Vietnam War was, yeah, was certainly yeah. a big part yeah, of that. Yeah. And if you look at... Uh, uh, I remember when I was a freshman in college is when the Kent State Massacre started. Where, where,
0: where were you in college? Then? I was at
1: Drake University That's in right. Des Moines, Iowa That's right. so it's a state capital Midwestern
0: University very
1: very solid small uh, liberal arts uh, school but did have a good journalism program uh, a state capital there was a senator there at the time who was one of the opponents of, of the Vietnam War But what happened was that uh, National Guards had been called up at a few of the campuses, and there had been bombings at certain places. It it was out of control. And you can imagine when you're away from home for the first time how this is impacting you, uh, let alone that you're a freshman in college and you're having that kind of transition to make. Anyway, Kent State. Students murdered, Crosby, Stills, National Young wrote this song in acknowledgement of that, it became kind of an anthem. Most of the campuses across the country basically closed down that spring, and I remember that... Uh,
0: Not Texas Tech.
1: It didn't. <laughs> I don't think so. We yeah. oh, need to go back and check that. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but most certainly in the Midwest and East Coast did. Yeah. and I remember that the, you know the finals were canceled and and there was a there was also a positive spirit in that we can change the world. Yeah, I, I was kind of at the uh, University of Iowa for a
0: number of years, as you know. It's our first time we met in Chicago, sure. and and uh, there was I believe it was that semester that the one of the buildings burned down, and that was where all the grades were kept. So there's all these uh, alumni from that year that have no grades from that particular semester.
1: Well, we for us, there, there were no yeah. final exams. They were canceled. Yeah. And when you got back the next semester or over the summer, they said, look, it's all pass-fail. Unless you're not satisfied with that, it won't be counted on your grade point average. If uh, y- you insist on getting a grade, we'll, we will take the test in September. But other than that, it was pretty much pass-fail. Yeah. And... You know, it was as serious as it was, and certainly the the war was something that impacted all of us, there was also a a positive tone. It was almost, I hate to say it, but party down, because we were, felt this kind of collective spirit, and it was, uh, Ohio, I think, has a tone of anger to it, and a tone of rebellion, but uh, I think Neil Young just does a great job on it.
3: Soldiers and Nixon's coming. We're finally on our own this summer. I-
0: The Vietnam War is often seen as a turning point in American journalism because really until that time, journalists, certainly from the World War II era, they felt that they could practice journalism and also basically support the war effort, you know, support the, the government's effort in a particular war. And Korea was mostly that as well. But the Vietnam War, at some point, a lot of journalists started getting frustrated with the official story they started asking questions and, of course, we started getting the first, you know, really negative revelations about a, a, a war effort, you know, whether it was the My Massacre or the Tet Offensive or other places where just they no longer accepted the official narrative. And did you see that occurring on campuses and, and, and where you were working in journalism, too, that there was just sort of a shift in
1: the way people viewed journalism in society? Well, as let's go back to the present day. At the McCormick Foundation, we do a lot of uh, grant-making and support of national security journalism. So I've had the opportunity to go back and look at it from a historian's point of view on how different uh, you know, conflicts have been covered. And I, the, the folks I talked to were in covering Vietnam at that time talk about that it was wide open, that if you wanted to catch a helicopter ride out into the, this jungle, You would just go over by the army base and say you got room for one more so there was a lot of freedom of movement the the soldiers i think for whatever reason their commander officers did not make them uh, didn't gag them They, they were able to express their feelings and i think they were just trying the generals and so forth just trying to keep control of the situation but still allow enough freedom Vietnam was a much easier war to cover at least logistically especially when you compare it to what's going on now and you're in the desert or in these cities where there could be a you know car bomb at at any juncture Uh, There's much much more fear, a lot more, less openness now. You know, there there have been embedding programs with troops, but those days pretty much are behind us now. In Vietnam, they lived with the soldiers, they were part of the soldiers, and the press was exposed to what was going on. And I think they were then able to tell the story. So it was just a, it it was a watershed kind of experience. Your next song is
0: Oh Holy Night." Boy, that's a switch, right? Oh, From Ohio to o Holy time Night. To, there. Time now to... you're still in the choir. Then at this point, right? Or uh, <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, well, no, I would say no. I, uh, my love of Christmas carols goes way back, and and certainly, time singing in a church choir uh, was something that stuck with me the rest of my life. But I, I'm, I'm just looking at you know my list of songs, and I thought you know you got to have some contrast here, and I think there always is a time to give blessing. There should always be a time to reflect, and. Uh, Certainly for Christians, Christmas is the time to do that. Uh, I just felt that uh, some of these songs are so beautiful and the words are so written and they're, uh, they're just so familiar to much of society. But Oh Holy Night to me is just the one that I get goosebumps every time I hear it. I, I could have sent Joy to the World or Silent Night there, a bunch of them that I remember singing. And I still... If, go to church or during Christmas time and they're playing these songs and it, it, it just it just to me is a time to to think back of what your life has meant where it comes from and what's going to happen to you in the future it's a it's a meditation type situation for me but it was it was again it was through song uh, I remember going door to door caroling. That used to be a big tradition in, uh, in where I lived. And I, I just love Christmas carols, and Oh Holy Night moves me.
3: Oh Holy Night,
2: the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of the dear Savior's birth. a new and glorious morn Fall on your was born
0: of instances, or at least one you can share with, where you felt a story that you worked on hard produced a tangible difference?
1: You know, I used to do a lot of consumer affairs writing earlier in my career. And there was a lot of uh, price gouging going on at the time and a lot of uh, redlining was, was the term where, where people were not being able to get mortgages because of the color of their skin or whatever reason it might be, but they were redlined out of neighborhoods. And I was able to do some, some reporting on that. Uh, I remember I did one on an insurance company that preyed on older people and they were working through AARP and selling insurance, but it turned out to be kind of a, not a scam, but at highly inflated prices. So I guess the, what I'm most thankful for that I was able to help common people cope with modern economic challenges and sometimes you're uninformed and, and don't know the answer. So that type of reporting to me was, was probably uh, the most fun. Now. Take another turn again. Your next song is
0: Suspicious Minds, mm-hmm. because you got to be a little bit suspicious. You cannot be a journalist and just take on faith anybody, anybody tells you, right?
1: That, I thought it's a, the perfect title for a yeah. song that represents what, what journalists should be. Now, this is more about... Uh, uh... jealousy i would say but it's still it's questioning it's it's wondering it's 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 reflecting and suspicious minds is one of elvis's great songs i think it fueled his comeback he'd kind of gone downhill a little bit in popularity because of the Beatles and the Beach Boys and all this kind of rock and roll, but Elvis came out with Suspicious Minds and it just kind of, it, it, it swept the country at the time. I Again, I think it's about the human experience and whether you can trust people and should you trust people. It's about love, it's about uh, jealousy, it's all those things. But let's take the title for nothing else. It's what a good reporter should always have a suspicious mind.
3: We're caught at a drought. I can't walk out because I love you too much, baby. Why can't you see?
0: Your next song is A Day in the Life. Now, you mentioned the Beatles. and, and Now, can you sort of describe, it, it's hard for people because I, I didn't, I was still a child <laughs> and I guess I wasn't paying attention t- until the 70s to, to rock and roll and, and music. The Beatles were a phenomenon. They were just something so different than what America had been used to.
1: Do you remember like in your life that, like, wow, this is amazing. Yeah, well, definitely, yeah. that whole British invasion, but it had to do with long hair, if one thing, kind of flippant attitudes, uh, again, a, a, a different kind of electronic look at music, but they were typically love songs, like like anything else. They were about the trauma of being a teenager and growing up, but it was also love and happiness. But I think the American society, the parents especially at the time, really said this is, this is going to... Uh, have a profound impact on orderliness and the way families should be run, and they're too rebellious. And it was long hair more than anything else that I think really moved people. Is that your dad was most struck by? Is like, why well, uh, yeah, exactly. It said, well, and is this a kind of a cult? type situation. This was the era, just coming off the era of the crew cut or the yeah, very of course.
0: men just didn't wear long
1: hair. Right. It was just so different than uh, than what we had been used to. But the, uh, the Beatles were the least of it. I mean, they were still well-groomed and smiley and so forth. But once you started getting to the animals they, they were and sort the of Rolling Stones and some of these others yeah. that were uh, a little more down and dirty, then it really got out of control. But the Beatles, the Beatles are part of everybody's DNA who lived at that time. I mean, it's uh, the, the, the music that they listened to then, and many times it's what they listen to now. You said Paul McCartney came to Lubbock. I'm sure it was a very big deal. Uh, not only because of the tradition and history of what the Beatles mean, but he's so darn good. The Beatles are good because they're great. Uh, if you ever read um, Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers, which talks about what makes people outstanding, what sets people apart in whatever field you're talking about, science, medicine, entertainment, sports, it's that they practiced, they were lucky, and they had talent, but it was the practice, and I think he calls it the uh, 10,000 hour rule. Yeah. And the Beatles, of course, had a chemistry. It was a chemistry, but it was a chemistry that came from playing together and knowing each other and having kind of a camaraderie and teamwork that just transcended anybody else who would be doing the same thing at that time.
2: Changed. A crowd of people stood and stared. They'd seen his face before. Nobody was really sure. To the book, love to turn
3: you.
0: Your next song is probably the ultimate hope song. Somewhere Over the Rainbow, with Judy Garland
1: as Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz. What can you say about The Wizard of Oz? I mean, I remember watching that every year, sitting with my parents on the couch and watching The Wonderment of Oz and seeing the, the screen go from black and white to uh, color and the vividness of Oz and the great characters, but it's it's Judy Garland who who's singing somewhere over the rainbow, where where somebody will listen to her, where it's 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 a wonderful life and a great place to be. And she just yearned for something like that to that where people respected her for what she did and she could be what she wanted to be. And it's one of those songs that just stands the test of time. But it, when I was going through, again, trying to create a top ten list, this is one I thought has to be on there.
0: And, and it's really a quintessentially American song because America is the place that people from all over the world, I mean I I, I, I mean everyone I mean if you, you think about it, our Native Americans are descended from people who, who marched over from Siberia, you know, to, to find a better land. So everybody, going back 20-30,000 years, are people who came here with expectations of something better.
1: And you feel lost at times and you're wondering why you're doing what you're doing and you don't feel like you're getting ahead, but if you can keep that hope and keep that rainbow in sight, you've got a chance of reaching your ambitions and ideals.
4: Somewhere over the rainbow way up high There's a land that I heard of once in a lullaby Troubles melt like lemon drops away above the chimney tops. That's where you find me. Somewhere over the rain.
0: Your next song is right up my alley because uh, I lived in different places, but spent most of my teen years growing up in Philadelphia, right next door to New Jersey, mm-hmm. <laughs> where at that time, and, and, and you know, we've talked about, uh, before on this show about how there's a interesting research on generational preferences, which is basically the music, food, movies, the things that you grow to like in your teen through early 20s years sort of get locked into your brain. And you, you like them forever. Right. And it's actually hard to insert new things after that. Uh, uh, and so
1: Guilty as charged, Your Honor. Honor.
0: So I was growing up with, with Bruce Springsteen. Bruce Springsteen, actually, curiously, I was a middle-class kid. The middle-class kids listened to Bruce Springsteen. The working-class kids that he sang about didn't listen to him. They listened to uh, m- metal okay. <laughs> music. It an <So>, interesting so. <laughs> class thing there. But, but Bruce Springsteen was the guy absolutely my first car that Thunder Road was the first song I played in my first car with the girl that I hoped would be my first girlfriend.
1: How'd <laughs> work out? She out.
0: Turned out she didn't like Bruce Rings. <laughs>
1: you know, so. Well, I, yeah, for me, I was living in New Jersey at the time. I was going to Princeton to graduate school. The, the famous coincidence of him being on the cover of Time and Newsweek the same week, uh, right. he was this phenomena. And the Born to Run album had just come out, and being in New Jersey at the time. It was just, it was kind of overwhelming. So overwhelming, I didn't at first really grasp onto his music. I kind of had a a backlash against it, like, who is this guy? How could he be so big? But then you start listening, and you hit something like Thunder Road and it just poof, you want to take off the minute you hear it. So Bruce did win me over, but it is it was again, he's an American singing about uh, small town America and emotion and family and girlfriends and values and disappointments and heartaches. And I mean, I think he did re- kind of capture and reflect the middle-class values at that time, especially because the uh, there was a bad recession going on, and especially in that east uh, eastern and midwestern industrial parts yeah. of America, it was starting to decay and he was document i mean he was the poet
0: laureate of people who felt that the American dream was beginning to crack for them i mean he wrote you know about Youngstown, Ohio, he wrote about the the kid who's, you know, got his girlfriend pregnant and got a union card, but they're, you know, the plant isn't hiring anymore, you know, mm-hmm. all those, all those great jobs after World War II. I mean we talk about the GI Bill, but there was also a generation of people who went into the steel factories and who went into the car plants and they were making a fantastic, I mean, not, a, not a, they weren't rich, but they were making a middle-class living being an auto worker, a middle-class living being a steel worker. Mm-hmm. And, and he was just writing at that moment when that was cracking up, that, that economy, and we've never recovered
1: really. The American dream was forever altered. And uh, I think that uh, taking back to our journalistic roots, though, to me, that whole phenomena of what was going on, certainly he reflected and was able to capture it. But I'm looking at this, this phenomenon of how he was manufactured. How did this person somehow come on the scene? Well, it turned out he had done all the thousands of hours of practice in, in Asbury Park and some of these other places he would play in New Jersey. But how do you get on the cover of Time and Newsweek? I think it showed how packaging and marketing really did play a part in this. Again, at the beginning, I looked at Bruce Springsteen with kind of a jaundiced eye, but in the end, it comes back to- Because he was authentic. To, he, w- he wasn't some super group made up by a marketing team. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And, and ultimately, it's still excellent music. I mean, it, it drives.
5: The screen door slams. Mary's dress waves Like a vision she dances Across the porch as the radio plays Roy Orbison singing for the lonely Hey that's me and I want you only Don't turn me home again I just can't face myself alone again Don't run inside, darling, you know just what I'm here for So you're scared and you're
0: song. You're not leaving us cynical and, un- and miserable here, Clark. Uh, you are saying
1: happy, happy. By Pharrell Williams. Not, not the Keith Richard Rolling Stone song of, of the same name. This is last year's biggest song. I read somewhere that it's the most downloaded song in the history of the United Kingdom. It was number one in the U.S. for, you know, much of last year. It's not your demographic. Hey, uh, <laughs> <laughs> forever young, you know. It's if, if it has a beat and makes me dance, and I got happy feet and a happy smile, I'm happy. And I, I just thought this song you was know, You're so the first key. journalist I've ever met who's used the phrase happy feet. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I've got at times, <laughs> especially when I hear that song. It just, it it, it it it's overplayed, I think, and that's a problem with a lot of music that you, it, it's it's... Overexposed. However, don't listen to it for a couple months and put it on and see if your feet don't become happy.
0: And and it's funny, Clark. You remember
1: uh, a gentleman named uh, Hubert Humphrey, of course,
0: who was a senator and vice president, ran for president. He was known as the Happy Warrior hmm. uh, by by many people. I think with one title of one one of the books about him. And, but that he he faced like, you know, it was a terrible era of Vietnam War, you know, depression, recession, all. But he kept having this deep abiding joy and hope in the political process, in America, in the American people, the good, the horse sense of the American people. It always struck me the first time we met that you you completely understood all the challenges (laughs) facing journalism, uh, the challenges facing, you know, our, our public political culture and the public sphere. But you have a sense of optimism about that we can overcome,
1: right? Well, those are kind words, and that's what I try to put into practice because hard work should be rewarded. Uh, innovation and creativity uh, should be you know, part of what goes on in journalism education. I saw the Pulitzer Prize winners announced earlier this week and go look at some of the just terrific work that's been done. So we can sit here and say – the, the profession's dying, and nobody cares about news. But I, I, I think the evidence points the other way. And you can look at it half full, uh, the way a Hubert Humphrey would, or you can you know doom and gloom it. I I, I just don't think it does any good to do, do doom and gloom. Look at the reality of the situation, see how you can invest your time and effort to make it better. And if you don't want to play the game, get out of the game.
0: Absolutely. You know, the revenue model is either broken or challenged. There's no question about it. But I think today people are just as passionate about news as they were 40 years ago. I grew up in a home where my parents subscribed to things called a newspaper that arrived on the doorstep. In fact, when my father passed away three years ago, I think was the beginning of the end for the print print journalism, because he subscribed to five newspapers <laughs> yeah. up to, until his 80s. We watched the CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite. They got time in, both time and Newsweek. So I think we were about as news-informed as you could be in 1982. But now we have these one billion sources of news, and our challenge, of course, is differentiating the, you know, the lies from the truth and the, the, the bleep for, from, the, from the
1: valuable lessons. But people are still passionate to know. I think, well, let's look at it on this campus. Uh, I'd I challenge any of the students to go a day or a week without getting news and information. Do you say, do you follow the news? Ask them if they do, and they may say yes, they may say no, but say, track for a week what it is you do to get news and information. And I think you'd be surprised. Now, sometimes they don't think it is the news because it's a, it's a link to something that was tweeted to them. Uh, you know, it could be something about entertainment or it could be something like uh, a woman eating three seventy-two 72-ounce steaks in Amarillo, uh, you know, but that those are part of the news. I think the, the challenge right now is that news comes at you and you're not able to discover it. And the problem when it comes to you, you may not get that kind of well-rounded perspective and be able to follow what's going on on the national stage and international, which every good citizen should do because I think news is kind of the, 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 the door that unlocks a good democracy. And, and I think we've got to, can't lose sight of that. I happen to believe that the millennials, your students, do care about the news. They just get it in different ways, in different forms, and we've just got to hopefully uh, instill them the values of of going forward, why it's important to keep up with the news, and at the same time, hope that many of your students are successful in careers and get to be the news media sources of the future.
0: Well, thank you for fighting the good fight for news and for public affairs and for America, Clark. And you are Superman, I, and, but and, and maybe a, a more demure disguise than the, the, the fictional character. So it's been a pleasure,
1: Dean. Thank you.
6: Okay.